morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. I want you to know that, that uh, I'm so excited about something that's going to happen uh, at the end of the service today that there is a part of me that just wants to fast forward and skip to that part. Uh, can't wait to get there, and you will see why uh, in a little while. Uh, but I'm not going to do that uh, because there's something important that must happen between now and then as we study God's Word together. See some very important things from 2 Corinthians today. Do you have your Bibles? Yeah? Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where you need to go. You know how many chapters there are in 2 Corinthians? 13. We're in chapter 12. We're getting close to the end. That's good news, right? Last week we saw Paul continue to confront these false apostles, speak the language that they have, they have forced him to speak. I told you last week that he is terribly uncomfortable with all of this talk about boasting, but these desperate times call for desperate measures, and so he's willing to speak the language that they require him to speak. It's interesting as he does begin to boast, though, he doesn't boast in his successes. He doesn't talk about how many churches he's planted or how many disciples he has made or how many miles he's traveled or how many crowds he's spoken to. He speaks about his weaknesses, about his trials, and about his sufferings. He is humble in the midst of all of this boasting, and we need to remember as we move into the text today that he remains humble as he talks about the things that God has shown him. As we zoomed out last week, we saw three very important lessons of application First, we talked about how ministry is important. Ministry being representing and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's important. There are a lot of things we are and a lot of things we do in this life, but there is nothing more important than our role as disciple, as minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a father, maybe you're a mother, maybe you're a son, maybe you're a granddaughter, maybe you're a banker. I don't, I don't know what you are, but if you are a disciple of Christ, your role as a minister of the gospel trumps all of those things. Ministry is of utmost importance. We talked about that last week. We talked secondly about how ministry is hard. There will be resistance to ministry as you represent and proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. There will be resistance. After all, there is an adversary who does not want to see that happen. There will be pressure from all kinds of areas. There will be disappointments. There will be pain. Jesus told us about all of this, too. He didn't say, listen, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be cake and roses. The road will be smooth and you will have no troubles. Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It's good news, right? He says to us, take up your cross and follow me. Follow him to what? Just to death? Just to suffering? Just to pain? No, follow me through pain, through suffering, through death, into glory, right? We talked about how ministry is important and ministry is hard. And then finally we said, ministry is worth it. It is absolutely worth it to spend your life, to give your life in representing and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. We could spend our lives, we could give our lives on a lot of other things that will burn up in the end. But if we invest ourselves in this one thing, in representing and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, that lasts forever. Amen? That's what I want to be about. I hope that's what you want to be about. That's certainly what Paul was about. And that's what we're going to look at in the text today. This week, we're going to uh, see an interesting bit of boasting from Paul. He's going to let us in on a glorious secret that he has kept for 14 years. We'll talk about why he kept the secret for that long. We'll talk about his suffering that came as a result of that. As I read commentaries about this text, there were a couple of guys in particular that wanted to make this text an answer to the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever had that question? 
It's a bad question. It's a dumb question, in fact, I would say. I don't think this text is about that at all because I don't think that ever happens. Bad things don't happen to good people because there aren't any good people. Let me, let me rephrase. Bad thing happened to a, bad pers- a good person once. His name was Jesus, right? Good person, bad thing, and he did that for us. But the rest of us, when we face bad things, we're bad people. That's what we should expect. Maybe the better question is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's what we deal with more often in our lives, right? Why do I receive any blessings? Why does any good thing come my way? Why am I able to wake up in the morning and breathe? Why is the sun shining? Why can I move around? That's a good thing that happens to a bad person, and it's all grace, right? And so we want to celebrate that, that today. We're not going to go the direction that so many commentators go with this text today. I think, I think we're going to try to be a little more faithful to what all of the Bible says today as we look at Paul's boast about this vision that he had and then the thorn in his flesh that came as a result. Hopefully we'll see that as God intended. We pray that will be so. Check it out in first, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10 today says this. Boasting is necessary though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast. But on my own behalf, behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish to boast. For if I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself... There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that he might, that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for this text, this reminder, this principle, that when we are weak, we are strong. That in our weaknesses, the power of Christ may dwell in us. God, I thank you that this experience that Paul had of a glorious vision and a thorn in the flesh to torment him and keep him humble, this power perfected in weakness is such a great picture of the gospel as a whole. We are not strong. We have nothing in ourselves to boast of. We come to the cross empty, broken, bringing nothing in our hands. And in that broken, needy, desperate position, you display your power. You fill us up with your strength. You give us all that we need. And in you, we are made strong. We are made whole. We are made alive. We are reconciled to you. God, I thank you for that great story. 
that great truth. And I pray that it is the gospel that we celebrate today for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you look at the first half of verse number one, it helps us understand a little bit Paul's whole mentality in this big section about boasting. You know, last week I told you he was uncomfortable about all of this. He kept giving disclaimer after disclaimer. It's clear he doesn't like this kind of language. It's clear he doesn't like this kind of logic. But he feels like the false apostles in Corinth forced him into this. And listen to what he says at the beginning of verse 1. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. He says, I've got to talk like this. I've got to tell you about my sufferings and about my persecutions. And maybe even he's setting the stage for what he's about to say about this glorious revelation he received from the Lord. He says, I've got to do this. This is necessary. It's necessary maybe especially in Corinth because they have bought the, the boasting of the false apostles, hook, line, and sinker. They are prone to talk about visions and ecstatic experiences, and they have just gone off the deep end with these guys. And he says, this kind of boasting is necessary, but it's not profitable. He says, this is, this is not the discussion that we need to be having with each other. When we stand around, when we sit around as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not the kind of discussion that we should be having. Not about what have you done and what has happened in your life and those kind of things, but rather what has God done, right? And what are we learning from him and those kind of things? Just to play this one-upsmanship of service and sacrifice or revelation and vision, it just is not helpful. And Paul says it's necessary in this case, but it's not profitable. And then the second half of this verse, he introduces the topic, the next arena that he will enter into. He says, I will go on. Even though he says it's not profitable, it's necessary but not profitable, he says, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. This is the arena that we're going to be working in today, visions and revelations of the Lord. And Paul is going to tell us about one that he had 14 years ago that he's never told anyone else about. But Paul has lots of other experience with this, does he not? Is this the only vision or revelation of the Lord that Paul had, this one he describes when he's caught up into the third heaven? Is this the only time Paul had an experience with, with this, like this? No? What are some others? You tell me. Yeah, when he was saved, Damascus Road, right? He's traveling along to Damascus with letters to persecute the church of Christ, right? And all of a sudden, a bright light, and he's knocked down onto the ground. He cannot see, and he hears Jesus speak to him, right? And what's he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And then he goes on to describe to him what he will do. And he raises him up and he sends him on into Damascus and his life is forever changed. Right, That's a pretty significant vision that we hear about in a lot of ways, but not necessarily from Paul very often. What are some other visions that Paul had? Do you, any of you remember the rest of them? Right, When he was stoned to death? Okay, excellent. When else? Or nearly to death. All right. We see a vision with the Macedonian call in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 to 10. In Corinth itself, after he experiences some resistance, he has a vision of the Lord. God speaks to him. Jesus speaks to him. He says, listen, stay there. Stay there. I have many people in this city. You stay there and minister in Corinth because I have many people in that city. What a confidence booster that is to Paul as he ministers in Corinth itself. He gets a revelation from the Lord. And then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, we see another vision. So Paul is not unfamiliar with this kind of thing, and yet he doesn't talk about it a great deal. He doesn't talk about it a great deal, and we'll see why in just a minute. But what I want you to see is that the area that Paul is about to go into is one that he is very familiar with, though he doesn't speak about it much. But it's one that the Corinthians are prone to dive into the deep end with. 
right? We saw that in 1 Corinthians, didn't we? With Paul's talking to them about spiritual gifts, how they're obsessed with tongues and these kind of ecstatic experiences and all of these visions and things. And Paul is trying to rein them in a little bit and say, listen, you should value more a clearly articulated word of prophecy that exists for everyone's edification, that everyone can understand for the building up of the church. He says that's to be preferred over 10,000 words in a tongue. And so he's going to say the same thing here. He's going to say, yeah, I had this vision, but that's not what's most important. We don't want to build the church on visions and revelations. We want to build the church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So in verse 2, look what happens. In verse 2, he begins with this incredible humility. He says, I know a man. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago had this experience. There are a lot of people that want to argue with Paul's not talking about himself here. He's talking about a guy he knows. He's talking about this friend of his who had this vision. That doesn't really make any sense when you get down to verse 7. In verse 7, he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, right? Seems like in verse 7 he says of the verses that came before it, that was about me, but in great humility he will only speak about himself in this story from the third person, right? To try to remove himself as much as possible from this thing because it's not any, any glory to him that he received this vision, right? He just received it and God gave it to him and God gave it to him for his encouragement and for his sake, not for their sake. And so he's going to try to, in a weird linguistic way, remove himself from this story and speak of himself in the third person as he tells this story. Look Look what happens as he tells it. He says, I know a man in Christ. That's very important. Paul is saying that he received this revelation, this vision after he became a Christian. This is not something he got before his conversion. This is something he got after his conversion. We'll talk about maybe why he got this vision later on. But he is in Christ. This is something that happens to him in his Christian life. And then he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 14 years ago, he had this vision. He got this revelation. My question is, why is he just now talking about it? Your question should be, why is he just now talking about it? Suppose someone in this room today got a vision like Paul got 14 years ago in this text. You got to see the glory of God, heaven revealed, and you heard all of these things that are inexpressible and not permitted to be spoken. What would you do? Well, let me ask you what has happened in the world when people claim to have visions and revelations like this. What do they do? Straight to Facebook? Straight to Twitter? No, that's not even good enough. Straight to the New York Times bestseller list, right? That's what happens when you get a revelation like this. You share it with everybody in the world, right? Because you want everybody to know about it. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul gets this major revelation, sees these wonderful things that he can't even express and he's not permitted to express, and he keeps it all inside for 14 years. And only when his feet are put to the fire, only when times are desperate, only when it is absolutely necessary does he share this. And I want you to see that even as he shares the content of the revelation, he doesn't share anything about it. He talks about it for four or five verses and doesn't say a word about it. In fact, most of the time he says, I don't even know. Was I in the body? Was I out of the body? I don't know. Was I in the body? Was I out of the body? I don't know. He just keeps saying that, right? He doesn't want them to know the content. For 14 years, he kept this quiet. One one commentator on this verse said, the reason why Paul got this vision and kept it a secret was this. This thing happened for Paul's own sake. For a man who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts, needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him persevere undaunted. Why 
why did Paul receive a vision like this? And why did he keep it such a secret? Because it was just for him. It wasn't for the world. It wasn't for the church. It was for him. And maybe if this happened shortly after his conversion, after Jesus said, you will suffer many things for my name's sake, maybe he then showed him these things to encourage him when times got tough. We'll talk about that a little more in just a minute. Look what it says next. It says, I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, only God knows. We'll talk a lot today about how the purpose of these kind of visions, these kind of revelations is not to be foundational for the church. These things, if they are given still today, and perhaps they could be, are given for the encouragement of believers not to build the church upon these visions and revelations because these things can't be verified, can they? What if, what if I stood up here today and I should have done this? I should have said, guys, listen, last night I had a vision. I had a vision from the Lord, a revelation from the Lord, and all the things that I saw, words can't even express it and I'm not permitted to. What if I just made all of that up? And you guys said, oh, that's cool. That's, that, is, that is just incredible. Chris must be extra special. Let's hang on every word he said. And then I said, all right, church, the next thing I want you to know is that God told me that you guys should drink this tulip that I've made. trust me on this, I've had a vision, a revelation from the Lord, drink the tulip. It's a bad move, right? It's a bad move. We don't want to build our lives, we don't want to build the church, we don't want to build our discipleship on these kind of ecstatic experiences. If they exist, if they happen, they exist only for our personal encouragement. We need to build the church, we need to build our discipleship on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that can be verified by eyewitnesses, not like these ecstatic experiences that anybody could just make up, right? Jesus died and a lot of people saw him die, right? Jesus rose and a lot of people saw him raise, right? Yeah, say amen to that because they did. That thing didn't happen in isolation, didn't happen in a bubble. It wasn't a story that just was passed around. 500 brothers at one time saw Jesus raised from the dead, right? Verifiable acts of history. That's what we base the church on. That's what we build our lives on. You see where I'm going with this? Paul says that's what the church is supposed to be built on, not ecstatic experiences. He says this ecstatic experience of mine was meant for me. Private. For me. And I'm not... I'm not necessarily against those kind of private things, by the way. As your pastor, I don't know that I'm necessarily against those, that I, that I believe those things couldn't happen. You know, a few years ago in Southern Baptist Life, there was a lot of talk in missionary circles about private prayer languages, that, that some people believe that they talk to God in a, in a language that no one else understands, and it's just between us and God, private prayer language. You know what the most important word in that is? Private. If it's a private prayer language, if it's something between you and God that exists for your encouragement and your edification and your relationship with him, and it's just between you and him, then keep it just between you and him. Make sense? When you start talking all about your private prayer language, it kind of cheapens the whole thing. And it tends to draw a whole lot of attention on yourself. But if you've got something between you and the Lord that's kind of odd and abnormal maybe even, and it's secret between you and the Lord, keep it between you and the Lord. That's what Paul did for 14 years. He kept this vision that he had between he and the Lord, and it served him well every day of his life. So these kind of private things, if they exist, are meant to be private things. You hear me on that? I'm not trying to deny their existence, but I'm saying don't get on Twitter and Facebook and talk about your private prayer language. Don't write a bestseller about your private vision. If it's private, it's meant to be private. 
Look what he says next. He says, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Seems like to be a major part of this whole deal. He doesn't really understand how it happened. Was this something he just dreamed? Was this something that happened all inside of his head, inside of his heart? Is this something that happened only spiritually? Or was he physically transported from one place to another? He says, I'm not real sure about that. It kind of could be either, right? Could, could be either. Could be something that he just knew in his spirit and in his mind. Or God's transported people before, right? Philip chases after the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Runs him down, shares the gospel with him, baptizes him, and then what happens? Philip's gone, snatched up, taken away in the body. That was not a spiritual exercise. That was a physical exercise, and God physically transported him from one place to another. We don't know how that happened, but it really did. So it could be either. And Paul's point is, that's not the point. It doesn't matter whether it happened in the body or out of the body. I don't even know. God knows, and it was glorious. Look what he goes on to say. <clears throat> he says, such a man, again referring to himself, was caught up into the third heaven. Here, Paul is using the standard language of Judaism in his day. They would talk about the heavens in three different realms. The first heaven is like the atmosphere that we live in, right? Birds fly, airplanes fly in the first heaven. The second heaven would describe kind of space, outer space. The stars, the moon, the sun, those exist in the second heaven. And then the third heaven is what we would refer to often as heaven, the place where God dwells. Does this make sense to you? So he wasn't caught up into the sky. He wasn't caught up into outer space. He didn't make a trip to the moon. He made a trip to the Lord's dwelling place, okay? That's where he went. And we'll see he describes it in the next verse by describing it as paradise. Go on to verse 3. He says, and I know how such a man, again, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, only God knows, was caught up into paradise. This idea of paradise is parallel with the third heaven. It is the dwelling place of God. It is the place where the souls of Christians who die go to be with the Lord until the resurrection of the body. And there is this reuniting of the body and the soul to dwell forever in the new heavens and new earth, right? But in the meantime, Christians who die, their souls go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? That's where they go. That's what we know. He says, this is where I went. This is the place that I was taken. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. He says, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. I think it's so interesting that Paul talks about this as visions and revelations, but he doesn't say anything about what he saw. John will talk about what he saw, right? When he was in the Lord on the Lord's day, in the spirit on the Lord's day, John will talk about what he saw, but Paul doesn't. Paul only talks about what he heard. And even when he talks about what he heard, he says, I can't talk about what I heard. Don't you love that? Don't you love that in relationship to probably what the false apostles were saying? They would say, I had this vision and I saw these things and I heard these words. And this is what the Lord said to me, drink the Kool-Aid, right? He just kept saying to me, drink the Kool-Aid, drink the Kool-Aid. They would have been giving great detail. And Paul, on the other hand, says, I can't tell you. I can't tell you what I heard. Because words don't do it justice. Two reasons why Paul says, I can't tell you what I heard. One is these are inexpressible words. I cannot express these words. And two, I was forbidden to speak these words. Look what he says. He says, I was caught up into paradise, heard inexpressible words, inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Seems like Jesus told him, don't say this. Don't say this. These are not words for you to share. This is words for you to hear. 
were these words too great for human words? Was he forbidden to speak? Yes, the answer is both. Look at verse 5. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness. Again, we see his humility. We see his heart when it comes to all of this boasting. He doesn't want to do this. He would rather talk about his weaknesses. We're going to see in verse 9 why that's the case, why he would rather talk about his weaknesses than the visions and victories that he had. Make no mistake, however, in verses 5 and 6, Paul is speaking the truth. He's not making this stuff up. This is something that really happened. Look at verse 6. It says, For I do, if I do wish to boast about... I, this is a hard verse. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. He says, if I wanted to give you all the details, I wouldn't be making it up. I wouldn't be speaking as a fool. I would be telling you the truth. This really happened. He says, but I will refrain from this. And then the end of verse 6 is maybe the most important thing we've seen so far. He says, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. Paul says, listen, don't trust me because I told you this. Don't just take my word for it because I told you I had a vision. Don't just do whatever I say because I told you I was caught up into the, thir the third heaven. Don't just follow me because I claim to have this vision, right? He says, rather, watch me. Rather, listen to me. Rather, observe me. Paul says, I want you to follow me because I've preached to you consistently the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to follow me because I've displayed for you consistently the gospel of Jesus Christ through my own suffering. Does that make sense? We need to hear this as a church because that's one of the ways Satan, through false apostles, will influence the church today. They will claim to have some experience, and then they will stand before you and say, based on this experience that I'm telling you I've had, follow me. And you need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell me about the gospel. Show me the gospel. Don't tell me about your visions and dreams. Tell me what the word says. Then we'll follow, right? Because we know what the authority is in the church today, don't we? Is it visions and dreams? Is the authority of the church today based on visions and dreams? No, it's based on the word of God. Come on. <laughs> in the words of Bud Logeman, come on. Based on the word of God, not visions and dreams. Visions and dreams are cool, right? Exciting. Crazy stuff happened. Let me tell you about the crazy thing that happened to me this week. No, I don't care about the crazy thing that happened to you this week. Tell me what the Word of God says. That's what I need to know. Oh, you guys, are you with me on this? This is happening a lot, of, a lot of places. Let me tell you about this wild vision I had in the bathroom today. In the words of Paul Washer, I don't care what happened in the bathroom today. Tell me what the Word of God says. That's what we need. That's what the church needs. Amen? Okay. Paul says, I didn't tell you about this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me and hears in me. Paul is inviting the church to observe his life, to listen closely to his teaching, to weigh those things against the word of God. But he's not just inviting them to do that with him. He's inviting them to do that with the false teachers as well. This may be the key to the whole thing. He's saying, don't just trust them because of what they say they've seen or what they say they've heard. Observe their lives. We're studying this in 2 Timothy, right? First and 2 Timothy, observe their lives. They're full of ungodliness and selfishness and greed and lust and anger and fights about words. Observe their lives. Listen to their doctrine. See that they are false apostles. He is caring about the false apostles here. He's caring about the church. He's saying, listen, don't just, don't just listen to what they say they've seen. Listen to their teaching. Listen to their lives. Observe their lives. 
And then verse 7, he shifts gears, and this is awesome. This is the best part of the whole text. It says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I love this, don't you? So, so he says, all right, go on to dreams and visions. I had a dream. I was caught up in the third heaven, but I'm not going to tell you anything about it, right? It's basically what he says. And then he says, and in the aftermath of this, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me humble, I was given by God a messenger of Satan, a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble. And he's going to talk about that a lot. This is a humble guy, right? He's doing everything he can so that the church will not build itself on him. A couple of things you need to notice here. The origin of this thorn in the flesh. This throne, this thorn, it says throne in my notes. <laughs> this thorn came from God. You need to understand that clearly. The thorn came from God, but Satan was involved. And this is a pattern we see all throughout Scripture. God ultimately in control of everything. Amen to that? God ultimately in control of everything. He is a sovereign one, and we praise him as such. He sits on the throne. Satan only does what God allows. You agree with that? We'll go to Job for this, right? Job, <laughs> Satan and God at the beginning of Job, have a conversation. And God basically tells Satan, this is what you can do with Job and no more. You can go this far and no farther. And then have another conversation. He says, okay, I'll let you go a little farther, but no farther than that. We see Satan on a leash, so to speak, in Scripture. He has power. He has a certain amount of authority. He can cause a lot of trouble, but he's not out of control. He's not freely running around. Okay, Aren't you thankful for that? Can you imagine what the world would be like if he was? If he was running around off the leash? Bad news. God is ultimately in control. Satan only does what God allows. God intends this thorn in Paul's flesh for Paul's good to keep him humble. That's the intention of God with the thorn. Paul's good. Keep him humble. Satan intends to use this thorn to break Paul and to render him useless for the kingdom of God. God intends it to make him more useful for the kingdom of God. Satan intends it to be the breaking point for Paul and render him useless for the kingdom of God. And I think we experience similar things in our own lives today. Similar issues that come up that God gives us for our good, for our growth, so that we'll be more useful for his kingdom. But Satan would love to use those very same things to break us down and render us useless. Aren't you thankful for the outcome of this today? That this thorn in Paul's flesh does not render him useless. It makes him more useful in the kingdom of God. And that's what we desire for you as well. So the origin. God is ultimately the cause. Satan is also involved, but he is on a leash. The purpose of this is stated over and over and over again. To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from being conceited. Right? The reason was he had this vision. And this vision could puff him up. It could make him proud. It could cause him to get self-consumed. He says, but God sent this thorn to keep me humble, to keep me low, to keep me from being conceited. I read a story about how in ancient times, in Paul's day, when a Roman general won a big battle, he would come back into his hometown and there would be a great parade, which, by the way, Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that later on. They would have a big
big parade and everybody would be talking about how great this general is and, and, and they would be honoring him and praising him. And they said, what I read was that oftentimes there would be a slave that would ride in the chariot with that general that everyone was shouting praises to. And his job, the slave's job, was to whisper consistently in the ear of that general, you too are mortal, you too are mortal, you too are mortal. Love that, don't you? Because that general could get all puffed up and think, man, I'm something great. I'm something awesome. These people are right. I'm glorious and I'm wonderful, right? But he's got that slave whispering in his ear, you're not so wonderful. You're not so glorious. You're going to die someday too. And Paul says, that's the way the storm worked for him. Kept me humble. You got any of that in your life? Man, I do. Some of them are people. Some of them are in this room. And I don't particularly like thorn in my flesh and I'm thankful for it keeps me humble keeps me low keeps me from being conceited and there's even greater greater purpose in it read on oh before we read on we talked about origin we talked about purpose the question that 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 is begged by all this is what was it what was the thorn in his flesh and a lot of people speculate about this was it some kind of physical ailment some people believe he was hunched over and had some orthopedic issues some people believe Paul was blind Uh, other people think he was just sickly all the time having trouble with his guts and so you could talk about physical issues or other people that would say this is all about persecution and the trouble he was facing from the outside and uh, the, the 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 pressure he was facing from different people other folks will say this was a spiritual issue that it was some kind of temptation that he was constantly facing maybe a weakness in his life where he was especially prone to some kind of sin and just couldn't couldn't get over it I don't think that's a valid one here because of the way he talks about it later but we don't know what it was and we should not make authoritative claims about what this thorn in the flesh was and it's not even good for us to do that because not knowing what it was leaves it open for a number of applications for us today Not knowing exactly what this thorn was leaves it open for a number of applications for us today. I can't tell you what your particular thorn is that keeps you humble. You know what it is, and it's probably not like mine. Verse 8, he goes on. He says, concerning this, concerning this thorn that God gave him to keep him humble, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Paul is not a masochist. When he talks about the value of this thorn, he doesn't say, oh, I just like being hurt. I just enjoy it. This pain in my side, I just like it. It's not the case. He doesn't like it. He asks the Lord three times to take it away. He's not a masochist. He's not a stoic. He's not unmoved by this, unaffected by this. Yes, this is the thorn in my flesh. I cannot feel it. That's That's not the attitude he has about it. It hurts him. So he goes to the Lord three times. In fact, he follows the pattern of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times, the Lord Jesus goes to the Father and says, Oh, take it away. Is there any other way? Can you just take this away from me, this cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Can you just remove it from me? Three times he goes to the Father and asks for that. And three times the Father says what? No. No, this is the way it must be. And Jesus leaves that garden. One of the coolest things about that story is that Jesus leaves that garden with more confidence, more resolve, more courage than when he went into that garden, right? Even though God doesn't take it away, he leaves leaves with more confidence, leaves with more courage. And that's exactly what happens with Paul. Three times, he says, three times I implored the Lord that that it might leave me. And he said to me, oh, this is glorious. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. This is amazing, right? 
to answer me? And he says, no, I'm not going to take it away. Rather, I'm going to use this to show you that my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. If I took this away, you might get out of hand. I gave it to you after all. If I took it away, you might get out of hand. You might get proud. You might get puffed up. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace, one scholar says, describes God's undeserved favor to mankind. It is a dynamic force, totally transforming believers' lives, beginning at salvation and continuing through sanctification to glorification. Grace is good, right? Grace is all the hope that we have. Grace, right? Aren't you thankful that God gives unmerited favor? What if God worked on a merit system? Two points, three points, five points. We're all in the world of hurt if that's the case, right? Because my scorecard would look like this. Minus five points, minus ten points. Merit is bad news for us. Grace, though, is good news. That God would give his favor to us undeservedly. That he would punish his son instead of us. Oh, it's good news, right? So God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. That word sufficient is beautiful. Spurgeon talked about what that word looks like. He says sufficient reminds him of a fish, a, a little fish in the ocean who's very thirsty. A little fish in the ocean who's very thirsty. And God says, oh, there's plenty of water for you, little fish. Plenty of water for you to drink, little fish. Look at this ocean and be satisfied with this ocean. He describes it in another place by talking about a little mouse, a little mouse that's hungry. And he happens to live in the granaries of Egypt, in the storehouses of Egypt. That little, that little mouse gets so hungry, and God says, look, there's more, there's more than you could ever need right here. There's, there's more than you could ever eat right here, and I've provided it for you. And that's the way it is with grace for us, right? We need grace, and God says, oh, there's, there's more. There's more than you need. There's more than you could ever enjoy even. There's a, an abundant supply of grace for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Just enjoy that for a minute, right? My grace is sufficient for you think you're dealing with some tough stuff today? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. You think your life is falling apart and you've got no hope? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, it's there. It's in abundance. Sufficient for you. And then he says this, this big theme. He says, for power is perfected in weakness. And I believe that statement by the Lord to Paul is the theme of all of 2 Corinthians. Theme of the whole letter. And we'll talk about some different places where that is seen. He says, power is perfected in weakness. So the question is, what weaknesses are there in your life that allows God's power to shine through? What, what are the areas in your life that allow God's power to shine through? And I look in the front row here, and I've got a huge example of that right now, right? Weakness and struggle and pain. And an example of how God's power shines through that situation. We've got a lot of, got a lot of examples of that in this room today. And I want us to be careful as we think about that question, what are my weaknesses that allow God's power to shine through? I want us to be careful not to equate weakness with sinfulness. Because some of us, some of us could use this principle and say, well, I'm, I'm just a liar and I'm just a cheater and I'm just a thief and, and somehow God's, God's light, God's power shines through my lying and my cheating and my stealing. That's not a good logic. That's not like the suffering that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about in his weaknesses power of God shines through. The power of God is perfected. Look how he goes on. At the end of verse 9, it might be the most important part of the whole text. He says, most gladly, therefore, 
I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Which would you rather boast about, the power that you display or the power that God displays through you in your weaknesses? The power of Christ dwelling in you. That's the theme of this whole letter. Go back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The power of Christ dwelling in us. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He says, I want to tell you about the pain I had, and the purpose of that pain was that I wouldn't trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. Go to chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He's talking there about his suffering and how his suffering produces the spread of the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 and 12. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. You see the principle over and over and over again? Power manifested in weakness. Go to chapter 6, verse 4. But in everything, committing ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. You get that? He says it's nothing, but it's everything. It's little, but it's much. It's, 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 it's weakness, but it's power. It's the theme of the whole letter, and it should be the theme of our lives. Because it's essentially the gospel, right? We don't go to God powerful, mighty, strong, worthy. We go to God broken, needy, weak. And in our weakness, his strength shines. Amen? In our weakness, his power is made perfect. And that's what we want to display our entire lives. Verse 10 says this, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three applications, four today, and then we're done. Number one is this. Secret encouragements from God are meant to be secret. If you've got one of those, I don't, I don't want to discredit that. I don't want to belittle it. If you've got one of those things, it's so secret. Just be quiet. It was meant for you, not for us meant for your encouragement, not for the world. If you've got one of those things, private issue between you and the Lord, keep it private. Number two, more importantly, the authority of the church was never intended to be based on ecstatic experiences. The authority of the church was always meant to be based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the word of God. 
We don't build ourselves on visions and dreams. We build ourselves on the truth. God builds us on the truth. Application number three. God does not want us to be conceited and will go to great lengths to prevent that. One preacher preaching this text one time, I heard him say, God prefers the occasional limp over the perpetual strut. I like that. And we see that over and over and over again in Scripture, right? Jacob wrestles with the Lord, right? Actually seems to gain the upper hand on the Lord at one point. And how's he walk for the rest of his life? With every step, remembers that day. Paul, thorn in the flesh. God does not want us to be conceited, and he will go to great lengths to prevent it. And application number four, boast in your weaknesses. Boast in your weaknesses, not in your strengths, because those weaknesses afford an opportunity for the power of Christ to dwell in you. Those weaknesses afford an opportunity for the power of Christ to dwell in you. So boast about them and boast about the power of Christ, but don't be caught boasting about your own strength your own merit, your own worth, your own power. God might just humble you or humiliate you. He prefers the limp over the strut because he can display his power in you. And essentially, it's the gospel. The basics of the gospel are you cannot, he can, he did, come to him broken and he will strengthen you. Come to him needy and he will provide for you. Come to him weak and he'll display his power so just like the song we sang a minute ago, we come to him just as we are, not fixed up and strong and clean and mighty, broken, needy, sinful, and he transforms us with his power, with his strength, and with his might. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you. Oh, God, thank you for thorns. Thank you for thorns that keep us humble, that remind us always of our need for you. Thank you for weaknesses that we have through which you display, manifest your power. God, thank you for those things. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Help us remember that the church is built on that and not our experiences. God, I pray for folks who are in this room today who are struggling with their weaknesses. It's breaking them. It's leaving them hopeless and helpless. They don't see any purpose in those weaknesses. God, I pray that you'll come to them and encourage them today. You will show them that in those weaknesses, the power of Christ dwells in them, that you intend to show your strength through those weaknesses. God, I pray that you encourage them with that. And God, I pray for people who are far off from you, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, know nothing of their need for you. God, I pray that you'll come to them today, show them their sinfulness, show them their need for you, show them your love for them in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. God, give them faith and repentance to turn from sin and follow you and trust you. God, bring them hope and life, forgiveness and reconciliation for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, if you're here today,